0: Lewis's is champion tusmont joins the organization what does the future hold under the eye of billy sandow listen up and find out crazy territory stories double crosses and swerves pro history nerds you press the button you clicked on the icon you clapped your hand you yelled hey siri alexis whatever the heck it is you're using to get to this point What am I talking about? What's happening? Who am I? My name's Nick Gossert. I am a pro-wrestling promoter, a booker. But more importantly for today, I am a pro-wrestling historian. And I am here, as always, with the Alvin and the Chipmunks to my Dave. What a labored uh, little metaphor that is. But, Chongo! What's going on, Chongo Bronson? I'm in trouble
1: now, man. Dave Seville and the Chipmunks? Okay, as long as I get to... uh... Get away with all those kind of shenanigans. Alvin was Alvin was a real rebel. Oh yeah, well
0: now we can seeing wrestling, wrestling time is here. We shouldn't do that ever again. Well, welcome to the show everybody. Enough rambling out of us. Uh, this is a great show. This is a great series. We are having a lot of fun discussing the years after Hackenschmidt and Gotch and how wrestling progressed from there to here. Uh, you know, if you if you know this kind of era, you know, well enough. If this is your first episode, well, welcome to the show. I hope you enjoy it. If you have no idea what the hell we're talking about, go back a few episodes. You know, I say start with the Stanislaus Bisco episode. It's a great jump on point for this long-form story we're telling, how we've gone from, you know, just chaos and the collapse of the wrestling business, to Jack Curley taking things over, to the impact of World War One to the kind of, uh, you know, fall of Jack Hurley and Billy Sandow taking it over. It's been a wild ride, and it's just going to keep on getting wilder.
1: Yeah, and we're also getting into exactly 100 years ago. We are now making our way into 1923. 99 years ago and this is where all of the things we hold as sort of standard tropes in modern professional wrestling are becoming developed and sort of it's like it's like when the ocean makes the rock shape the way that it is these are things that formed out of necessity based on the the times
0: and that may be more topical than you even know because We are going to be discussing how a lot of what we consider the normal things in pro wrestling booking today, how they were birthed in the year 1923. So this is going to be an exciting topic. And some of you may be hardcore history nerds like us, and you may say, well, according to, you know, Lou Thez's biography, Ed Strangler-Lewis said this, or according to this newspaper writer, this match was for this, or according to this database, this match actually happened there. Well, I'm digging through all the old articles. I am digging through the old interviews, source material. And yeah, sometimes those old sources are wrong because sometimes the paper in Des Moines, Didn't get the details right about a wrestling match in Kansas City. Sometimes I'm right because, you know, an old-time wrestler, of course, is going to embellish a story 15 ways to Sunday as he gets older and gets more grandiose with his storytelling.
1: Who can say we're doing the best we can with what we're working with? You know what, man, unless you are a well-polished necromancer that shows up at the door with the corpse of Billy Sandow to spin the yarn himself, I really don't want to hear it because we are doing the deep dive into the bedrock of the history, man. The Hippodromic Stress is equipped with a drill like those things that get you to the Technodrome, Daddy, and we're going to the bedrock, brother, so strap in. So we will pick up at the start of
0: the year 1923, if you remember things from the last couple episodes. New York City, which was the hotspot, the mecca, the epicenter of professional wrestling, was not having a good time because of the Athletic Commission taking over the sport we had a champion from the greco-roman days of the 1880s to 1890s william will now being in charge of what wrestling is and how it was run in the city and the state and it was not going terribly well because he inst you know he put back into rules flying and rolling falls so gone were the pinfalls the i put your shoulders to the canvas one two three from the referee yay i win a match now it was back to flying falls where I could, you know, hooks get a body lock, pick you up, and slam you down. And so long as two shoulders or two hips and a shoulder make contact instantaneously, guess what? That's a fall. Or if I, you know, manage to just back roll myself because I've been used to working a specific style for so long, well, guess what? I accidentally pinned myself, and that fall was over. Wrestlers hated it. Promoters hated it and nobody hated it more
1: than the audience themselves. And that's that's what it boils down to, regardless of what the nuance of the rule change went from to went to. The point was, Muldoon had it in his head that his personal agenda and sort of like the adherence to the way that it was and trying to restore the greatness of Greco and the legitimacy of the competition instead of going where the thing evolved to and turning it into this ideological battle, he made them have the match he wanted them to have instead of the match the people wanted them to have, and in doing so, he burned his own town. Exactly, and that is that has
0: been a problem in pro wrestling from day one to this day. The if somebody thinks I know what's best and it's the people who are wrong, it's the you know Seymour Skinner meme. The totally could know, <laughs> yeah. I, I be so out of touch? No, it's the children who are wrong, and the whole country was taking notice. On January second, the Omaha Morning Bee published. Wrestling games suffering from a big slump, lamenting the downslide of wrestling in New York City after the trust broke up, after Curly and Sandow split, and then we didn't have the concentration of talent and booking that they had before, and the Athletic Commission changing the rules. So this is something that's being discussed nationwide because the big matches were no longer always in New York. They were starting to spread back into the Midwest. They were starting to move a little bit into California and Texas. So different places are now becoming the, the big draw states and the big draw cities because they could still book the way they wanted to book. They could have the rules that they wanted to have, the way that the audience wanted to see the sport unfold.
1: Yeah, and it's, it shows that everything changes, but everything kind of stays the same because here it is 100 years later, and New York is leading from the front by staying behind. Right? Like, the wrestling business, as the the old saying was, the the business goes as New York goes. And New York shit the bed here because Muldoon would rather see it not succeed than to see this new school thing that he was ideologically against for so long of catch wrestling and worked matches to blow out the previous standard of what the box office could do. He would rather see the thing burn than let them win. In a way, it just made me think about
0: this. It made me think of... The early days of mixed martial arts, the early UFC days, the no-holds-barred, you know, days, the NHB days, when, you know, the you know, UFC started blowing up, and the blowback was not an embrace of the sport, but a way to restrict it. So it was constantly having to move around, where it was no longer in, you know, the big arenas. It was it was back, to, it was at, like, Indian casino reservation uh, you know, arenas. Everything just had to move things around to weird places to continue the growth just to keep it going. This I mean this this sport wrestling, it still had the giant audiences who wanted to gobble it up and there were friendly cities and states, but the shifting of where marquee matches had to be hosted to make them meaningful and good really had an impact on what the entire business was up to.
1: Yeah, and it sucks because it's not outside factors that are, you know, negatively affecting the course and the progress of professional wrestling as a, as a whole, as an art form, as an entertainment form. It's the internal fighting. That it's the, the internal war between, uh, you know, different ideologies that ends up preventing the progress from being what it could be, right? And that's, that's almost more tragic. And you'll keep that in
0: mind as you start hearing where all these matches are being held. You'll see what cities start picking up the slack when New York dropped the rope. And another fun thing in January, on January 8th, the Omaha Morning Beat, what yet again, it's always one of my favorite papers for wrestling, gave the wrestling world a serious bit of foreshadowing with Big Mun May Turn Pro Wrestler. Discussing Wayne Munn's athletic career in college and being Missouri Valley champion in 1916 and 1917 before shipping off to the Great War, Larnie Lichtenstein, formerly Pesek's uh, manager, was trying to lure him into the business, which would be a history-defining moment, but not in the way that they imagined. That's a thing we'll talk about a lot as we move down the line, but it's just fun to see the, the seeds being planted to uh, you know the mighty tree that is the, the punchline on this story. January 10th, Ed Lewis defends his title against Demetrius Tafalos in Los Angeles in front of 7,000, the biggest wrestling draw in L.A. at this point. Los Angeles was just starting to become a popular destination for cool kids, weirdos, and showbiz phonies. So, of course, they would start drawing pro wrestling at that time.
1: Yeah, that's a, it probably was the exact antithesis of a market of New York in terms of the ideology. They are show business. They want. They understand that it's about the draw and the money as opposed to the pure sport and competition, which does have its place, but that was... What a lot of this ideology came down to in issues with New York. He was trying to to preserve from the previous era where it was the legitimacy was so sacred. When that was not what would draw you a house. People wanted the show, man, and I'm sure California was hip to that game quick. Oh, absolutely.
0: And on January 23rd, Ed Lewis showed how much he valued and was invested in the success of Toots Mont during their match in Kansas City. Because as you remember from the last episode, Toots Mont, Ed Lewis, Billy Sandow, they hit it off like gangbusters. They brought Mont into the fold. He had a lot of ideas that they really liked and would gel well with what they were doing but he was also, in the public eye, primarily a wrestler. So behind the scenes, they were the gold dust trio. They were the three brains behind what the wrestling business was, but to the public, Toots Mont was Toots Mont, the wrestler, and he had this big match with Ed Lewis, and in it, Mont successfully escaped the headlock whenever Lewis applied it. At least 15 times, Lewis would apply the hold, only for Mont to get a crotch lift as a defense. Lewis won the first fall in one hour, 25 minutes, with a toehold. They went at each other hard, fast, and aggressive in the second until the time ran out. So Lewis won the only fall, but he made Mont look like an equal in the ring. So... The intent was to make Mont look good and set up for a Lewis versus Pesek match in the same city, Lewis being the victor, but it was so hot that they changed their plans and set a date for the rematch. So it really does show that Lewis was a giving person to the business and to his friends because we've spent so much time discussing how dangerous they made the headlock look, how they made it look like almost a Mortal Kombat fatality. They made it so deadly in the public eye that it caused riots. And now he's letting Mont escape it whenever he put it on there. He made Mont look like a goddamn titan in there because he's putting on his... Deadly, dangerous, dreaded headlock, and Mont just does almost the shoot move. You know, somebody puts you in a, he- a standing headlock, back body hold, or a crotch lift, and up you go. And he let Mont do that every single time. He made Mont look like an equal that he beat by
1: the skin of his teeth. Yeah, there's a lot to to that you can sort of take away and dissect and diagnose from that one. Basically, imagine somebody given a guy in their debut 15 of their finishers and he kicks out of each of them. I mean, he, they, and also that shows how over the stranglehold is that they had a, a count of how many times he got out of it.
0: Yep, exactly. Because this is a guy who's the top of the world. This is a guy who has the most dangerous hold in wrestling. And for them to start shining the spotlight on Mont using that as the storytelling tool to make him an equal to lewis because obviously you know you want your friends uh, to look strong if you're doing that and also you they both realized if we make this giant guy toots mont into a Uh, you know, top level grappler, well, now we have another star that could be put on equal pedestal that's in with the gang that we don't have to worry about.
1: So, yes, going back to the number of things that we will find that are common tropes now, I would say this is the definition of the rub. Right? The the championship rug from the over guy.
0: One hundred percent. And he he did that with Londos, he did it with Pesic. So it was something that was very common on his behalf. Yes. And he and he did but he because he realized something that many top guys never did. That doing that does not diminish his own
1: star. Yeah, you're only as good as your contemporaries. That's the difference between Mayweather and Ali, right? Is Ali had all of these juggernauts that were, you know, Ali versus this monster, Ali versus this monster. You are all, you know, you're only as good as your your best opponents. And I, even though he has been very generous, I haven't seen him put that level of a sort of respect on somebody yet. And I think that that's another element of them building a new star. And in the exact opposite direction, uh, a favorite story of mine. I love
0: reading about this one on January twenty fifth. Wrestler Nat Pendleton walked into a trap. Pendleton was a collegiate wrestler who started his career at Columbia University. He was the 1914 and 1915 Eastern Collegiate Wrestling Association champion for his weight class and went on to the 1920 Olympics in Antwerp, Belgium, where he took silver after a controversial decision lost to Switzerland's Robert Roth. Already got a a pedigree like a motherfucker here.
1: Like this guy... This, this this guy is the real deal. Oh yeah, this guy, like, collegiate wrestler, bad motherfucker. Olympic wrestler, one of the baddest people walking the entire planet. And after his
0: Olympic showing, he turned his skills to pro wrestling soon after, under the watchful eye of Jack Curley, who you may remember was no longer in business with the Sandow Group and wasn't terribly happy about it. Pendleton was having some success with a win over Yusuf Hussein and a draw against Vladik Zabisco. But because of the business side of things, he couldn't get matches against the big names working for Sandow, so he went the same route many have before and since. He
1: decided that shit-talking was the best way to get attention. <laughs> yes, and you know, it's a tried-and-true formula that, that definitely has its merit in the fight game and, and the promotion game and pro wrestling and doesn't... I mean, you've seen it so many times where if you can't get the big dog to acknowledge you, you can call him out and then sort of play, oh, see, they were scared. Exactly. It's a tale as, tale as old as time. In November of
0: 1922, Pendleton's manager, Stuart Robson, claimed that Pendleton could beat three wrestlers in a single night, including Ed Lewis. And this clearly rubbed Sandow the wrong way. On January 25th, Pendleton was convinced to travel to Boston to face a mystery opponent, Pendleton assumed and hoped it would be his local rival, Paul Bowser, who they had been kind of setting some things up with, who was also promoting the show and was aligned with Billy Sandow. Instead, it was John Pesick standing across the ring from him.
1: Dun, dun, dun!
0: Sandow again wanted to send a message about keeping certain names out of your goddamn mouth.
1: Yes, he called the police, as they say in those days. The policeman is on site and ready to... To serve the champion's justice to the would-be challenger to the throne. The handicap match
0: required Pesic to take two falls in 75 minutes to win. 6k for the winner along with 50% of the gates. The loser would get nothing. Ooh, that's some stiff stakes, Yeah, those are some high stakes, but it's also a, we're going to have a shoot match, Yeah, and you you put up or shut up, motherfucker. And that's what this really was. And Pesek, well, Pesek won both in a combined 41 minutes. In the first fall, we saw Pesek manhandle Pendleton, whom the locals believed to be unbeatable in a shoot match. John Pesek bullied him across the ring, into the ropes, through the ropes, onto the floor, and after the restart, he caught Pendleton in a double wrist lock, which he used to control and wear him down. So he had him cold in a double wrist lock, a Kimura for the jiu-jitsu kids, and instead of cranking it for a tap or forcing the shoulders down, he just kind of held him in in this hold and used that to just chew him up for a while.
1: How bad is Pesik, bro? That is an Olympic medalist. He is doing this to right Pedelton. We were just talking about Pedelton is a bad motherfucker, and he just he is getting he's big dog. Yeah, he's getting white belted. Yeah, straight doing. up getting he's getting a lesson taught to him across the mat, and that's that is maybe even scarier than anything I've heard about John Pesek before. And Pesic, after
0: playing with him for as long as he wanted to, caught Pendleton in a toe hold and cranked the fuck out of it. Oof. Pendleton tried a toe hold of his own, but Pesic kicked free. If you've ever seen two guys try to trade uh, leg locks, you'll kind of have a picture in your head. And Pesic cranked the toe hold so hard, everyone thought it was broken. Fortunately for Pendleton, it was just torn ligaments, and as somebody who has torn ligaments in his foot while grappling, I can tell you how much that fucking sucks. Yeah, he basically
1: turned it till something broke, and that particular combination of angle and torque, it was the ligaments instead of the bones, but he snapped that motherfucker shit. Yeah, if you want to
0: kind of want to think about it this way, trying to grapple with broken ligaments torn ligaments in your ankle is like trying to play a violin after
1: you've broken all the strings yeah it's it's, not and then he's still got the other fall maybe oh my gosh pesic is a pesic is a mean man dude yep
0: and i will give it to pendleton after the 10 minute rest period pendleton he was barely able to stand but still came out for the second fall uh throw with a bad landing, injured Pendleton's arm almost immediately oh. and he quickly gave up when Pessett caught another toehold. And I can't even imagine the terror he felt when he when he felt that get secured.
1: Yeah, that's a ter- dude what? but it shows the heart of an Olympian right there to, to, to come out for that second <laughs> fall on one leg against somebody that is just ravaging you. And then he got hurt even worse. It sounds like he's lucky to get out of there with half his limbs still intact. Yeah, and if
0: you think that's bad, Pesek ran over an Olympic silver medalist while so sick from an infected arm injury that he was barely able to perform. And he also managed to cut open his thumb and was bleeding badly. Again, a message was sent by Billy Sandow about running one's mouth against his people, and it gave us a great headline in the Lincoln Star, quote, Pesic makes monkey of Nat Peddleton in Matt Bout at Boston. The Lincoln, Nebraska State Journal published, Pesic is a real tiger man. He rips and tears up upon the mat, much like Jack Dempsey does in the ring. He deals out fierce, grueling punishment with relentless fury. And frankly, that's the nicest thing anyone could say about a man.
1: Yeah, dude. I mean, talk about a compliment. And it, it shows, like... He was so vilified last time. Despite the brilliant spin of Sandow turning it around, he was definitely vilified. And that was the catalyst for the rule change in New York was the last time he shot on somebody in this way. And they they buried the town of New York. And now he's got the people behind him and they're starting to appreciate the level of savagery. And I like that.
0: And don't feel too bad for for Pendleton. He would go on to be a minor character actor with over 100 film credits, including a role as strongman and wrestler Eugene Sandow in 1936's *The Great Zigfield*.
1: Whoa! So does that mean that he just like retired
0: that fool? He didn't retire him, but it definitely took all the wind out of his sails. Like, I mean, he reduced his. You know, because he was an Olympic medalist. He was going toe-to-toe with, you know, younger Zabisco and people like that. And then you step in and get absolutely fucking murdered by John Pesek. Where do you go from there? You know, you've just tumbled so far down. You, It's a hard road to rebuild. And for some people, it's just not worth it. And he had the looks to, uh, you know, get, uh, get, get jobs at Hollywood. So why not
1: go that route? That is even more savage. Pesek took this man and made him quit the game. That is, that's some scary shit. And Pesek, yeah, he was getting a reputation for violence on
0: par with Dempsey. He was lightning quick and relentless. He also, at this point, had a private gym at his Ravina farm with a full-size ring, gymnastic rings from wall to wall on the ceiling, sandbags, and a punching bag. And I'm almost envious of this gym just reading that description. And you'll be thinking, like, sandbags and gymnastics? Well... Combat sport fitness is not lifting weights. I don't know, you may look at guys on WDB programming and see their bodybuilder physiques, but real combat, real wrestling, real boxing, real MMA, uh, physiques and combat readiness and working out is not doing 15 types of bench presses. So you have very well developed, you know, bodybuilder pectoral muscles. It is throwing around sandbags. It is swinging around a steel mace. It is doing, you know, rings, you know, routines for gymnastics because it's all core strength and functional functionality. You know, if you look at a guy like you know like like the like a big WWE star a John Cena's physique and then you compare it to Fedor Emelianenko and then you ask the average person who doesn't know either of them who's going to win in that fight <laughs> I guarantee you they're going to be wrong
1: Oh yeah and it's it's because one is moving weights and one is moving bodies and everything that you just described in his home gym is about moving bodies that's basically a ninja training center Oh yeah i like it sounds like the
0: world's coolest jungle gym made for
1: beating asses yeah and that's pretty much what a fighter should train in is like a ninja jungle gym
0: (laughs) and i'm already laughing thinking about this one on speaking of pesic on february 10th the omaha morning bee reports wife of wrestler pesic throws motor opponent making light of pesic's wife plowing into an oil truck with her sedan flipping the truck onto its side and slightly injuring the driver. Whoa. <laughs> so yeah, so, so John Pesek's wife was just like fucking blew through a stop sign, probably not texting since it's 1923, hit a truck, the truck fell, got knocked on its side, Guy got hurt, and the, the, the newspapers are just saying, like, oh, looks
1: like John's not the only one in the family that can throw people. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, he's so over now. That's, he's got, like, Mike Tyson cred with the media where he could just probably swing on somebody, and they're like, he deserved it, man. Like, that's, that is incredible, man. It's good to know that they're not so pessimistic. Oh, I hate you. You're off. Who wants to replace Chongo on this show after that one? Good Lord. So the bar
0: isn't high. (laughs) I I found this other one. Uh, It has nothing to do with the narrative that we're telling, but I loved it so much I had to share. On February 15th, Spencer News Herald covered. A. B. Snyder of Sioux Rapids filing a lawsuit to recover the sixteen hundred dollars he bet on a wrestling match between Ralph Manghart M- M- and Johnny Myers. This guy spent a shitload of money in 1923 to bet on a professional wrestling match. Realized he's an idiot, but not, a, but was still too much of an idiot to just take the take the loss and keep walking with your dignity intact. He filed a lawsuit in court against the wrestlers to recover the money he bet on it because he'd been swindled by professional wrestling.
1: Man, knowing to take the L, probably bow out with some grace. But, like, I want to know who who set up that okey-doke, who whispered that sweet potion in his ear, because that is quite the money mark. (laughs) Uh, Back to the story.
0: On February 15th, a rematch between Toots Mont and Ed Strangler-Lewis Mont took the first fall in just under two hours, but was so exhausted from the effort that Lewis ran him over for the following two. This went down in front of a reported 10,000 fans. So, once again, they built up Mont to be a huge draw. They put him into this program with the champion. Mont, it looks like a fucking superhero. Two hours wears down the champion for a big fall, but now he's just so tired. He put everything out there for the first win, but now he just doesn't have anything in the tank, and Ed Lewis takes advantage of it being the crafty veteran champion.
1: Dude, it's like the setup of some Disney movie or something. I mean, what amazing storytelling. Like, the use, also the brilliant use of the two out of three falls, because that's a completely the opposite manner of utilizing who wins what fall than the previous stuff they did where now he did get him he got the you know the bull got through early but that took all he had and then the savvy vet could hold on from the dude it is brilliant brilliant storytelling man and like you said ten thousand people off of the seven thousand before and next one who knows because they're now they know that Mont can beat him because that's all it is you get the baby face chase and you got the established vet, the old gunslinger, and, and they want to see who's gonna take him out. Now they know they want to be there the night he does.
0: Yeah, this is pretty much it's kind of once again, it's a throwback to the original strangler, Evan Lewis. When you have the title on a on a very, very, very strong and good heel, the most important thing is to have a baby face chasing them. And yep. that's what they have here with guys like Mont. Like they had like with Zabisco. So they realize the formula. And are just perfecting it. They're just cooking it down to perfection at this time. Because back in the day, you would have guys like Evan Lewis. But because it was mostly a shoot, he would be winning nonstop. And people would still be paying wanting to see him lose and were very happy when it finally happened. But that's a, a long chase over years. This is the sort of thing you could pull the trigger on every six months.
1: Yeah, and you know, you know those 1923 Smart fans were just like, bro, I told you. I told you at first he stopped the stranglehold fifteen times. Now we got the first fall, brother. we're gonna we're gonna get the belt back from Strangler. And this relationship with Mont was paying off already. Mont
0: kept Lewis sharp and in shape with their training because Lewis did have a tendency to kind of go to fat kid mode. You know, he he grew up poor, so he knew shoved a, a meal down your face every time you get it. He was also so talented that he didn't really want to work very hard, a little bit of BJ Penn syndrome, if you will. So Mont was really good for him because he kind of stayed on him. If you see a photo of Toot Mont as a competitor, the dude was a physical beast. So clearly he was making sure... That uh, Lewis was in shape. That's one of the reasons Sandow initially brought him on board. And he could also legitimately manhandle about anyone. Again, Mont was a Farmer Burns trained catch wrestling shooter. And since he kept losing worked matches to Lewis, getting badly beaten by Mont meant on paper that you had no business getting a match with Lewis. So he also became a great policeman because the guys who might be uh, double crossers or outsiders, the the trust busters, if you will, they would be like, oh, well, it's kind of like John Pesach. It'd be like, oh, well, if you want a shot at Lewis, you have to beat this guy. And if you do business properly, you're fine. Or if you try any bullshit, or if you're mouthing off too fucking much, well, guess what? A guy like Mont is going to stretch the fuck out of you, make you look like an asshole, and then when it comes time to bring your name up again, it's going to be, Lewis beats Mont every time, and Mont destroyed you. Why do you think you get a shot at this guy?
1: Yeah, and what's funny is that practice is... Very alive and well today in pretty much any combat sports gym across the country. If somebody somebody comes walking in that they don't know, talking big game, they get put with the gatekeeper to see if this guy's legit. And he's either going to get the shit kicked out of him, or if he really is that one in a hundred that has the goods, then he's going to get to show it. But that is a common thing in the modern fight game now.
0: And another aspect that I was reading about is it wasn't necessarily just the, hey, I'm going to make you look bad in front of everyone. So when you ask for another shot, it doesn't make any sense to the public eye. And there was also the, hey, if you're a super asshole, I'm going to stretch you so hard that you're injured. And this is 1923. You know, a a joint injury is going to take a year to heal up. So by the time you come back, you know, any mouthing off you might have done, anything you might have done to get, uh, you know, get some heat on your name, it no longer means a goddamn thing. So it's, you know, go along with the business and do well. If not, you get shut out, either you know by just being beaten, or you get hurt to the point where you're out of the business for a year and have to rebuild. And
1: what sucks is they're the one group that are actually right when they do that. They're being exclusionary because their formula works and people are trying to come in and fuck with it and disrupt it when they are literally setting the new standards of what professional wrestling drawing can be. It's kind of like, I actually
0: tweeted this the other day. I want to make a shirt of it. Uh, Quality control looks like gatekeeping when you fucking suck. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, yeah. Yeah, the cut print, that's a shirt for sure. I want one. According to Marcus Griffins, the Barnums of Bounce... Farmer Burns wrote a letter of introduction to Lewis and Sandow on Mont's behalf when they first came together. Quote, He's a big kid, but he knows the game. He's as good a wrestler as you will find. He's got a good head on him too. And if you give him a chance, he'll develop not only into a great wrestler, but he'll be a help to you in the business. And this was an understatement. For half a decade, the newly formed Gold Dust Trio controlled and redefined the wrestling business. Mont agreed that wrestling needed to be exciting to move tickets instead of making money on the side bets and the scams so the style continued to evolve into a high pace back and forth and slowly dialed back the length of main events and stacked the mid card cards would go from being one or two matches to three or four it allowed them to build up various undercard stars on the same shows as the champ so the crowd would feel that they have an interest and emotional involvement when someone worked their way up to a title shot mont convinced sandow to book cards like a vaudeville show layered for maximum entertainment value thus becoming the first central booking office shows would come as a package with no need for local goofballs to pad the lineup that could possibly fuck things up or pull some bullshit So we now see the birth of the Traveling Wrestling card. It's no longer, hey, we're going to send the big star because the manager put together this one big match and we'll just kind of put one, maybe two matches underneath it. Well, now it's a revolving cast with an evolving storyline.
1: And it's also the The start of the utilization of the undercard to build those future stars, like you said, because that's one of the biggest practices you see now. When they got a guy that might be somebody, whether it's in the UFC or if for years in boxing, like the next big guy is going to be in the undercard of whatever the biggest card they've got going is because they want to get that guy that exposure and see if he has that star power. And it's it's by adding matches to the card... You're lowering the amount of time and the stress on the top guys. Their their work, their physical workload is is lowering, so they can do more. It's brilliant on every level of analysis.
0: Exactly, because we're no longer having you know like a four hour main event. You bring it down to you know an hour or two. It's still incredibly long by you know our uh, by our understanding of the business today. But back then, you know you that that's how it was, and it was still thrilling, and it was the thing you you wanted to pay your money to see. But it gave that breathing room for an undercard of developing stars, or you know, you have the guys like the you know former champions that tumble back down, but you still need to give them wins to keep them looking strong. It's brilliant. It's how wrestling is done today when it's done right, and it's how legitimate combat sports want to be when it works correctly.
1: Yes, and I love the way that that was phrased. The the the. Structuring it like a vaudeville element for maximum entertainment value, that's exactly how we, you know, whether you're talking about an individual match where you want the biggest pop of the match to be the finish, or you're talking about the the course of a show, that is the way that it's done.
0: And another thing that I truly loved reading about this, they would communicate via telegraph using codes and carny. Kizarni, terms, so telegraph operators and anybody carrying the message wouldn't have any idea what they were looking at. So they would use, they'd have to send us, because they were a booking office, so they'd have to send the finishes and the cards via telegraph, and they just made sure it would be coded. It would would be like, Ravina over whatever. So to kind of, you know, so it would sound like, what what the fuck is this? But what they meant was like, Pesek's beating this guy. Or they would use you know, the Carney language, Kazarni, to send what would look like nonsense, but if you knew what you were looking at, you know what it meant, and that's how they would pass the messages state to state, town to town.
1: And again, it's another uh, standard thing that has become trope now. This is where it was invented out of necessity. And another thing that changed the game, because as we've discussed, Wrestling
0: used to be star and manager-driven, not promoter or territory-driven. So it used to be, oh, you want to match with Frank Gotch, you have to do business with his manager. It's kind of like modern-day boxing. Like Mayweather. Yeah, exactly, where you had to do business with them to get things set up. The promoter, the town, the undercard, none of this mattered. It was just about the big payday for whoever is in the main event or whoever is the champion. The Goldust Trio, however, they would run 50-50 gate splits with venues and promoters, which would mean much smaller profits for the local promoters who were used to the lion's share of the gate, often doubling as the main event star manager for an extra cut. So again, it's no longer this match is being put together by Emil Clank on behalf of Frank Gotch, so the two of them get 90% of the money. Now the local promoter has to bring in the show not the one star and in order to bring in the show you have to do the 50 50 split but honestly that probably did mean more money overall because now you could bring that through constantly it was a bigger show a better show you weren't burning people with bad matches for betting purposes so it probably did make them more money on the long run but it still pissed them off
1: Yeah, that's usually what happens, man. This is why we can't have nice things in the wrestling business.
0: And the other issue is it also made small promoters not able to develop local wrestlers to main eventers because if they weren't contracted by Sandow, they wouldn't be booked at all. So it was difficult for a local promoter to be like, hey, Cousin Goofus over here, I want him to be a big star. Well, if he's not signed by Sandow, he's not on the Sandow shows. But the Sandow Gold Dust Trio shows are the only shows that matter. So again, you're shut out. And then if you mouth off too much, John Pesek or Tootsmont ties you into a pretzel. So there really was no winning. And that's why those guys made all the goddamn money in the world.
1: And that's why it is so remarkable to me that Sandow is not just considered the all-time goat of pro wrestling.
0: I feel he is, but because he doesn't have like a direct lineage to something. And he wasn't a wrestler. Today. Yeah. Yeah. I see what you're saying.
1: Yeah. Like it's, he it's wasn't a WWE or.
0: Yeah. It's kind of like how, when we talked about Mildred Burke, where Mildred Burke was the first giant superstar in women's wrestling, but because Vince McMahon's family had a relationship with Mula, yep. everything gets directed back to her in the press clippings and the documentaries. Because there's no financial benefit to bringing up Mildred Burke.
1: Yeah, but Sandow literally invented the Fed. He invented the angle. He invented the, the double cross. The, the, not invented the double cross, but this guy was a master booker and promoter. And he either invented or utilized in a better and more creative way every single element of booking that I have ever heard.
0: And another thing he did that was new with this new kind of concept of wrestling booking is he knew the smart move was to install friendly promoters into Midwestern cities to handle their shows. This made a lot of people angry and would eventually lead to problems they couldn't uh, control or deal with down the down the road. But for the time being, it gave them the ability to earn more money than anyone thought wrestling could produce. So if you know that, uh, you know, dipshit A in in Tulsa is going to be a pain in the butt and is going to complain about the split. Well, cool. You bring in your guy and you use your money and your connections to install them as the promoter in that town. And then you bring your show exclusively to them. Yes. And then they make money. You make money. Nobody starts any problems. And the people who will start problems are on the outside talking shit, unable to affect, act, you know, unable to actually affect the product or the show.
1: And that's, it just shows the brilliance because they're going so far beyond pro wrestling to where they are literally running the infrastructure like as good as the mafia or the government or something. You know what I mean? Like they're they're locking it down and creating this monopoly of this new. They're, first, they're making it a thing that it never was. So no one else can keep up. Where now it's this traveling show. No one else has a traveling show. They've got it locked down that way. And now they're just further cementing it by putting in these. They're locking down their legacy, bro. It's changing the game.
0: Yeah, uh, Billy Sandow, a comparison I I really just I just thought of and I feel it really is applicable. He was wrestling's Michael Corleone. Yeah. He was the Godfather. Yeah, he straight was straight up. If you watch Godfather Part 2 and watch him just expanding through intrigue and farsightedness and knowing how the business had to grow to survive and be profitable... Billy Sandow was Michael Corleone.
1: That is maybe the best analogy that we've ever had on this show.
0: Uh, Unlike a certain somebody we're going to bring up again, on March 27th, the Perth Amboy Evening News covered William Muldoon refusing to greenlight the Ed Lewis-Cliff Binkley match due to Binkley not being main event caliber. So again, this is the type of thing which is in a legitimate sport is a good idea. I remember when Pride decided to run some shows in the US and the Athletic Commission chopped a couple matches because they're like, this is an insane mismatch, you maniacs. What are you fucking doing? This guy's going to get killed. But it's professional wrestling. It's everybody who has half a brain knows it's entertainment, not. a uh, a legitimate shoot but Muldoon is still regulating it like it's a legitimate sport so he's saying oh this guy can't wrestle the champion because he's not a real contender in my eye so every time they try to move a match back to New York City they would draw good money at an armory or at Madison Square Garden Muldoon found a way to fuck it up for everybody.
1: Man, that is this guy just is not fun to have at your party, yeah. is he? Yeah,
0: it's so funny to watch Muldoon, he was the subject of our first two episodes, go from the hero of the wrestling world yeah. to the guy that everybody just wants to go the fuck away forever.
1: So you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become Jim Cornette. Exactly.
0: But Lewis clearly didn't mind. He kept busy with wins over Jim Londos, Alan Eustace, and Dan Koloff. Not sure if he's any related to other famous Koloffs. Probably not, but I like to bring it up. And we start seeing more non-headlock finishes and opponents escaping the hold. I feel like it was an intentional attempt to take the heat off Lewis in light of previous riots and public scorn. And makes his opponents look stronger thus making himself even stronger by adapting with new tactics so by keeping the headlock in his arsenal but breaking up more toe holds and double wrist locks it shows that the the talent around him the contenders are getting stronger and smarter exactly they're evolving but then he's even craftier still because he has these other tools in his uh, arsenal that he can break out and still win the matches and it also, I feel, keeps the matches artistically fresh because you're not just seeing a headlock finish every gosh darn time. Now he's doing this. Now he's doing this. So by all means, it's worthwhile to buy a ticket to see him wrestle yet
1: again. Yeah, it's it's even and it also I don't think he's necessarily trying to position himself as sort of a baby face, as it were. But what it is is you like you said, he's softening the image a little bit from the guy that chokes people and starts riots to now he's the top attraction everybody wants to see him it reminds me a little bit of that bret hart run where he would just every match he would catch somebody in a different finish because it was just like he is the superior technician and that is the story that they are telling the, the the field caught up to his one hold and now his evolution is to adapt and be the technical wizard
0: on april 15th john pesic beat stanislaw zabisco in kansas city Three minutes into the match, Pesic rolled Zabisco and himself out of the ring with an alligator roll. Stanislaus took a swing at him, missed, and they had to be separated by police and audience members. Back in the ring, Pesic was aggressive, working head and body scissors until he forced Zabisco's shoulders to the canvas. Stanislaus couldn't get back to his feet for ten minutes, and after the rest, his manager called it off after ten seconds into the second fall. Whether it was a medical issue or a worked finish, it was still huge for Pesek's standing and set up a match versus Lewis. Zabisco spent the night in the hospital claiming to have a concussion from falling out of the ring. Um, if true, that sucks, but he sure seems to fall and hit his head a lot for a man that should have that good a balance.
1: Yeah, he, I mean, it's kind of turning into the Ric Flair bump at this point with this guy, isn't it? Like This is like one of his It signatures. really is.
0: It really is. April 15th, Ed Lewis beats wallace dugweed or however you pronounce his name dugweed in nashville dugweed barely escaped 19 headlocks so again he's making the headlock look a little bit weaker or his opponent's looking a little bit stronger and reportedly was left with a concussion and rushed to the hospital after being unconscious for 30 minutes i don't think that's true because if you're unconscious for 30 minutes you're not knocked out you are in a coma and
1: probably dying yeah, you're pretty much dead, right? If you if you've been choked, chug- so I guess I let the let's read between the lines there because what I just heard, he got out of nineteen, he didn't get out of twenty. <laughs> yeah. So I I feel that was a, not not a true medical problem,
0: but it did lead up to this big match, that really uh, really affected a career, May second. John Pesek versus Ed Strangler-Lewis in Kansas City under promoter Gabe Kaufman, who promoted it as a shoot match, which is a weird goddamn thing to do, but whatever. Both he and Sandow discouraged betting on the match, most likely due to the legal concerns. So it's kind of a paradox. They announce it as a shoot, but they also don't want people betting on it because it's clearly a work.
1: Yeah, it's like, it just shows the level of, of deception and strategy because i think the reason they're yeah on the one hand they're presenting it as a shoot so people will bet on it and then they're saying don't do it so it it actually further makes it seem legitimate because they're trying to preserve the sanctity of it and i think the additional element is because pesic has been such an absolute maniac that maybe they think if it is a shoot fight then lewis really might get
0: beat and that was the rumor Uh, Everybody assumed that this was going to be a title switch since Lewis was supposed to be on his way for a European tour. And instead, Lewis steamrolled Pesic in two straight falls, winning both falls with a toehold in one hour, two minutes, then two and a half minutes after that. 15,000 people showed up to see it. This may sound like a success, But it absolutely killed Pesek's credibility in Kansas City. They built him up as a contender. They built him up as a monster. And he was killed flat by Lewis. In some cities now, he was too dangerous to book because of shoots. And now in one city, he was unbookable for looking weak in a work.
1: Wow, that's a a tough spot. Because I was wondering, it's like, what happens when the policeman finally gets a shot at the title? I mean, one classic example of that was when Chuck got to finally fight Tito for the 205 belt, right? Where he was kind of his de facto policeman, even though it wasn't intentional, but it was like, he, that was the guy you had to beat to get a title shot. And Chuck eventually took it over. But in this booked way, yeah, I couldn't see without the title. It's awesome that it, because they used everything Pesic did to reinforce Strangler as the man.
0: Yep, but unfortunately, it just it, it did make Lewis fell look flat. strong, yeah, right. but it fell flat because now you have a guy who was built up as a monster, and he looked like shit. Steve Yohei found an article for his Ed Lewis biography that was from the Kansas City Star. Quote, John Pesek fooled the folks around here, a lot of them anyway. They thought he was a great wrestler, but his showing was a thing of sorrow to those who liked the Nebraskan. He had been called the Tiger Man. For Lewis, he was a tame tiger. Pitted against other wrestlers, Pesic had been a real demon at wrestling with strength, skill, and fury. Matched against the champion, he presented a sorry plight. He may be able to go elsewhere and stage a comeback, but it will have to be in Boston or some other favorite city. It will not be Kansas City. So yeah, he, he that that showing buried him in the Midwest, which is where his bread and butter
1: was at the time. See, I gotta say that was one of the few times where I've seen them sort of play. Maybe it turned out the wrong way, but you know what? When right when you said that he steam that Lewis steamrolled him for two straight falls, I thought that is brilliant. But obviously, they weren't ready for that level of yeah. upside now yet.
0: No, absolutely. Uh, he did rebound. On May 17th, Pesic is booked out east again with a match against Greek wrestler George Katsuneros in Boston's Grand Opera House. Katsuneros was a popular babyface in the area with a fearless style and it was matched against larger opponents regularly. Max Bauman claimed that Pesic would throw his Greek opponent twice in 35 minutes, but the tenacious Katsuneros dragged it out for over two hours. The pop of the night was strangely for a move that didn't happen. Casaneros grabbed a headlock and Pesek hoisted him up high for a slam, but then set him back down again as a show of respect and sportsmanship. The crowd applauded wildly and Pesek went on to win via pin at two hours and one minute. So he really must have liked this guy and the guy really must have been playing ball for him to pick him up for something that would have been brutal. And he just sets him down with a show of respect so it's either he really liked the guy, or he was dead set on kind of rehabilitating his image in the press.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking it's more of the latter, because I'm thinking he's like, No,
0: no, 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 don't kill him, don't kill him. We're, we're
1: nice, pesic now. Yes,
0: we have the old image. And in another weird aside, George Katzeneros went on to be a silent film actor, usually playing wrestlers, boxers, and henchmen. He returned to wrestling after the 1929 stock market crash, and was killed in a car crash
1: in 1933. As is a due fate for all boxing wrestling henchmen.
0: May 22nd, Ed Lewis beat Stanislaw Zabisco in Minneapolis in a one-hour, 39-minute single fall match. So again, Zabisco's still around. He's still a top guy. He is just not winning the matches that matter.
1: So at this point, how do you think this this shakes out as far as Lewis's public reputation? Do they Do you think that they were like, he's the man? Or do you think that they were like, He's having these guys lay down for him and he's washed up.
0: From everything I I've read, they he was, I mean, he was a huge star. He was a crossover pop star as much as you could be in those days with sports. He was on the level of, you know, Dempsey or you know, Babe Ruth. Yeah. He was a big sporting star, he was a big deal. So when he beats people, it seems legitimate. So nobody's seeing him as like a washed up guy taking on bums and works. He is enough of a star for everything him that he did mattered
1: yeah that speaks to his star power too if the same finish didn't disrupt his sort of public perception and absolutely derailed pesic
0: but one thing that definitely didn't help his public persona on june 21st the press announced that lewis and his wife ada were divorced with the charge of cruelty being the cause dr ada scott morton friedrich Apparently learned of this divorce from the press and didn't believe it at first because he filed it in a different state. So his wife one day wakes up, reads the paper, and finds out that she is now divorced. Definitely a heel move there, buddy.
1: Dude, that's like the first time anybody dumped their girl over Twitter. (laughs) Like, that's pretty savage. That is some heel life shit for sure.
0: Ed Lewis went on to spend the rest of the summer in Europe, working occasional matches, but it was clearly mostly a vacation for him and Sandow. And you'll notice that most summers in these stories are pretty uneventful. That's because farming and baseball took precedent during the summer months, and wrestling arenas didn't have air conditioning at the time. Those are some pretty big strikes against wrestling being big in these days.
1: Yeah, summer was traditionally kind of the wrestling off-season because exactly that, the heat. The heat was the thing man the heat will kill you it sure will so lewis he had like
0: i said six matches while traveling in england and the rest of the continent but it was mostly just travel he returned to america at the start of september meanwhile during the summer on july 4th 1923 jack dempsey took a fight against tommy gibbons in shelby montana the fight is called the sack of shelby because the town made an insane offer of $300,000 to secure the fight, and most of it going to Dempsey. Dempsey hadn't defended his title in two years, and an assumed washed-up Gibbons gave him a hard 15-round fight. The fight bankrupted several banks in Shelby because of the losses that the city guaranteed, and after this, Tex Rickard offered Dempsey $500,000 for a fight against Louis and Hell Furpo. and with those paydays, Dempsey was no longer interested about a worked boxer versus wrestler match against Ed Lewis. So that match that everybody was trying to build towards in 1922, it never happened. It never worked out for scheduling reasons. Now it didn't happen because there was no need for it to happen. Dempsey was now... Active again. He was making huge amounts of money doing what he actually loved doing. So this was a back burner thing that no longer was required for anyone's career, and it
1: just drifted off into the ether. I've never heard of an entire town being in a money mark before. But that's pretty that you oh, gotta right. be over.
0: It was like the monorail episode of The Simpsons. Yeah, totally. It's like it they is. just got they just put out all this money, and and Dempsey's like, how much? fuck yeah, let's do this. And then the match was kind of a disappointment because everybody expected Dempsey to kill the guy, and there was no way to make that amount of money back off of the show in Montana, so it just destroyed the town. <laughs>
1: that is awesome.
0: And while Lewis was in Europe, Tootsmont spent his summers hunting and finish in the Ozarks and met up with Lewis and Sandow upon their return. Lewis had put on weight from a summer of beer and rich foods, mont took responsibility to whip the strangler back into championship shape that fall the papers reported lewis being engaged to a member of the russian nobility living in exile after the russian revolution and civil war he claimed that he met princess maria Traveska in germany during his travels various wedding announcements were made for various cities but nothing came of it and soon she wasn't mentioned again making me wonder how much truth was involved in the story and if she ever existed <laughs> he's she he had a canadian girlfriend yeah she's a yeah. model and she lives in canada so you'll
1: never meet her yeah dude he like put out his own catfish story or something to like get the heat off of his divorce when he came back i don't know but that that's a weird one smells yeah. like a sandow somewhere i don't know because yeah. that's that's an odd bird it, i mean it's very much celebrity
0: drama yeah yeah but he's
1: he's definitely getting on to watch the birdie for a reason yep
0: and he spent most of November in California dealing with his divorce settlement. Earl Caddick, hey, remember Earl Caddick? He gave up wrestling after losing his title shot against Ed Lewis in 1922, and he made the Omaha Morning Bee on November 11th with an article claiming that he had found religion and became an evangelical. His seven-year phenomenal career in the ring was officially over. So, yeah, that you think about all the Earl Caddock stories we've told over the last few episodes. His entire career was seven years. And that included the time he spent in France
1: during the Great War. Wow, that's crazy. I thought he was going to come back with the full Shawn Michaels I found related. Oh, yeah. So no, the...
0: That would have been fun. But instead, nope, he just kind of went off into, into real life and never came back. And Joe Stetcher. Hey, remember Joe Stetcher. Well, he was refocused on his wrestling career after more than a year spent as a pro baseball player. He became the main event star in St. Louis under promoter Tom Pax. He was not a Sandow wrestler. Remember, he kind of saw, he kind of sided with the Curly side of things when the trust broke up. So he was on the outside of the Sandow business model. On November 6th, he beat Russian, or possibly quote Russian, heavyweight Ivan Mikhailov in two straight falls in St. Louis, and then beat Andy Anderson in Nashville on November 8th. Not sure if that's the same Andy Anderson who got beat up while wearing circus pants at UFC 5, but probably not. (laughs) Joe Stetcher was making a fast comeback in the wrestling world. The Washington Times on December 1st announced Joe Stetcher making fast comeback at wrestling, and that he was. On December 7th, Ed Lewis won another rematch against Stanislaw Zabisco. I certainly hope all of these losses don't eat him alive emotionally and make him insanely resentful down the road. <laughs>
1: well, you know. Foreshadowing. Here's, yeah, here's for hoping, but yeah, good luck with that one.
0: Because, yeah, you do have to think about his mindset because this was, again, a very proud Greco-Roman guy from the legitimate competition days who went through everything. He got the title, and now he's just just piling up the L's in worked matches, helping build up younger talent, putting over Ed Lewis. And I feel like to that type of personality, even though he's making a lot of money, he doesn't have like the Brock Lesnar mentality where it's like, just give me all the money, I don't care. Fuck, I'll 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 come out dancing like a like a silly goose. Just give me a million dollars. I don't give a fuck. So but I feel Zabisco was a different animal altogether.
1: Yeah, that almost makes it sad because then it's like this proud, noble beast is just being flaunted out there like a circus animal. That, that is, if it's not of their own volition, it's not cool, man.
0: And that's a story that we'll get to eventually. Ed Lewis, however, he was off to St. Louis for a match against Joseph Gurkowitz. Lewis told the story of a young technical wrestler running laps around him, but it not being enough lewis winning in two falls so it's the same story that lewis told with londos with pesic with all these various guys where clearly he's making himself look good by surviving the non-stop attacks and winning in the end and making the opponent look good by letting them just run rampage over him for the first uh you know the first fall
1: yeah it's it's really a brilliant way to utilize the top guy
0: and the thing that was more important than the match itself is Joe and Tony Stetcher were ringside and Billy Sandow threatened to call the whole thing off. If the promoter let them enter the ring to make a challenge, Joe and Tony were pissed about this, but they ended up making their announcement between falls when Sandow and Lewis were backstage. So Sandow saw these guys as outsiders and go, these assholes are going to get in here and try to call out Ed Lewis at one of my shows even though it's through a, a different promoter. Fuck that. But Joe and Tony still did it between falls when everybody's backstage, getting their uh, getting their shit in, if
1: you if you will. Oh, well, you're going to get your shit in, and then Sandow's going to get his shit in. And Ed Lewis
0: retorted when he came back out, he stated that he'd give Stetcher a title shot if he could first beat Stanislaus Zabisco, John Pesik, and Toots Mont, which is a gauntlet that I don't think anybody would want any part of.
1: Yeah, and that's that's the power of being the champ.
0: The <laughs> The Stetcher brothers offered a large guarantee, but they already
1: had their answer.
0: Remember again that the Stetcher sided with Jack Curley when the trust imploded and were now iced out of the Gold Dust Trio bookings and matches. And on top of that, there's a little bit of resentment back and forth, because that was not a uh, not an amicable divorce, if you will. So Stetcher, he was gone for a long time. He's rebuilding his reputation. He's not in with Sandow and it seems like the Sandow brothers are not 100% willing to commit to the Sandow agreements and business model. So they're now the ones on the outside hooting and hollering and talking shit hoping to get a main event match.
1: Well, you know, that's be careful what horse you bet on early in the game, bro, because what the side you end up on may end up be the, being the reason that you get pushed out yeah and stetcher was hot now that he was back and motivated
0: with matches booked in chicago and in new york under tex rickard at madison square garden but in the end the title was held by the sandow group it was held by ed lewis in the omaha morning bee on december 19th they recounted the st louis story with headline Champ Ed Lewis tells Stetcher to go and get a reputation. <laughs> Whew! Which feels like a devastating old-time insult. That sounds like the sort of shit that would have got, like, a like a rapper shot back in those days. Go and get a reputation. Oh, you want to fight me? Go and get a reputation,
1: kid. Dude, that is... like uh, Yeah, that is some, like... That's slapping somebody with the verbal glove for sure. Yeah, that is, that's
0: Olympic-level disrespect, and I take my
1: hat off to dude, it. I, dude, I'm going to have to bring that one back. Go and get a reputation. That is, that is, like, the meanest insult you could have ever heard on the playground.
0: Speaking of insults, another Omaha Morning Bee quote that is pure gold was published on December 14th. Maybe Stetcher feels that the wrestling championship would be worth more to a wrestler of his character than to Lewis. Joe always managed to retain a pretty good reputation as an upright young man in a game filled with mud throwers, second story workers, and wonder
1: workers in the art of the triple cross. Dude, shout out to the B, bro. That is like the greatest wrestling uh publication of all time
0: oh yeah no they are constant with their with their home runs but i lo- i just love that the mud throwers and second story workers <laughs> oh. you like that's like in those days i just think of like the clip from uh from friday just
1: damn yeah. oh, dude that is yeah you're getting dunked on like you're playing animal ball at Rutgers park with that one
0: on December twentieth, Max Bowman, Pesek's manager and Sandow's brother, told the Omaha Bee that they put down a thousand dollars that Pesek would beat Stetcher, clearly setting Stetcher up. That so many broken men had been in the past, so Stetcher's on the outside, wanting to get on the inside. Lewis wants no part of it unless they, you know, really sign on. And now Pesek's the one poking and being like, "Hey buddy, hey buddy, I got a thousand bucks. Says you can't beat me. Hey buddy, you know so." They they put that 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 gatekeeping that uh, policeman model is so good and so effective because Stetcher was a a great a shooter he was a great wrestler legitimately good at submissions but being told you have to be Pesic and Mont in order to get to the uh, to, in order to get to Lewis that's a tall order especially Mont who was probably fifty pounds heavier. Than, uh, than, than Stature was. So they built a, a business model, they built a system, they got it going coast to coast, they got their people in the right places to control every aspect of it, the money was pouring in, but now we are starting to see the stars on the outside Taking harder shots that can only be retaliated with harder countermeasures, asking that Peddleton how that worked. But now you have a former champion, a big star like Stetcher, knocking at the door, making a lot of noise. And where is that going to lead? Well, guess what? You're going to have to listen to the next episode in two weeks to find out what happens next because we're out of time. We've hit the end of the year 1923. It is time for me to go uh, make a make a sandwich and take a nap because I've been talking for a while and I'm awfully tired.
1: Dude, this is awesome. I Can you tell me what happens after the show ends? I still want to know, know. I'm not hanging on this clip for
0: two weeks. That's how it's going to have to be. I'm not even telling you. I'm keeping my secrets. Oh. That's, how this system, uh, that's how this system works. Consider the history and the stories for the next episode to be like the Goldust Trio belt, and you are Stetcher on the outside knocking on the door, and I'm not giving you a crack at it.
1: Damn, that's... <laughs> pessico of me buddy go and get a reputation
0: <sighs> thank you for being here everybody hopefully you are enjoying this wild ride hopefully you like us on facebook follow us on twitter same thing with instagram i like to post a lot of the articles i find the the supplemental material the explanations the the sources up so you can take a look at them i've found some wild stuff to post in uh in reference to this episode that i think you'll like But we'll be back in two weeks with more of this madness, more of this nonsense, more of this story as we explore the year 1924 in
1: professional wrestling.
0: For Chango Bronson, I'm Nick Gossert. We'll talk to you then.
1: Peace out, nerds. Follow us on the internet so we can go and get a reputation.